0: You are listening to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Welcome to the Organization for Human Brain Mapping Neurosalience podcast. I'm your host, Peter Banatini. Here, I interview neuroscientists and discuss their work, as well as the latest developments, issues and controversies in the field of brain mapping. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Ahmad Hariri, whose work involves integrating psychology, neuroimaging, pharmacology, and molecular genetics in the search for biological pathways mediating individual differences in behavior and related uh, risk for psychopathology. Dr. Hari is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Duke University, where he's also director of the Laboratory of Neurogenetics. Uh, he recently was a, a senior author of an important paper that received attention both in the field and also in the popular media. And uh, this paper, published in the Journal of Psychological Science in 2020 with first author Maxwell Elliott, is titled, What is the Test-Retest Reliability of Common Task-Functional MRI Measures? Uh, new Empirical Evidence and meta So, we spend much of the podcast talking about this paper's implications and how we can address the challenges that it presents to continue to move the field forward. So, so in the podcast, I believe we have a lot of, I think, useful information, and ultimately, the message is is positive uh, and hopeful. He's certainly not... suggesting that we all switch our tools, Uh, fMRI is still extremely powerful technique and extremely useful. But he does talk about, we talk at length about, you know, the sources of variability and the ways of actually moving the field forward in terms of, you know, having more standard ways of analyzing the data, having standard ways of reporting the, the data, metrics for stability. And also the most important part, I think, is the idea that much of this lack of reproducibility comes from from studies being designed specifically to look at group difference effects, as opposed to being designed to pull out individual difference effects. And so we talk more than a little bit about that throughout the podcast. So that's, uh, I think, an important message to take home as well, that it's not only scanner instability or processing issues, it's how we design our paradigm. And that field is actually just beginning. So I hope you enjoy the podcast.
1: Okay, Ahmad, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Or, uh, or be with you virtually anyway.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing, yeah, one thing that maybe uh, you know, one good side of COVID is that it made these made us realize that these meetings and this sort of thing is uh something it's an option that we can do and maybe yeah. continue to do a version of this, you know.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's a the new new way of uh working, I suppose. Yeah.
0: <laughs> So yeah, so um, I knew you for a long time. I've been I've known you since yeah. uh, you know we overlapped a little bit at the NIH and
1: yeah,
0: uh, working with Danny Weinberger. And I always remember you going up to uh, it's it, one you know different things stand out. I remember obviously you were you were, had great work going on there, and we can talk about that. But I also remember at lunchtime you know they had a gym at the top of Building 10, <laughs> and, and you would go up and play basketball all the time there, and it was sort of like a yeah. regular thing that people did.
1: Yeah. Those were great times, Peter. I, like you, remember them very fondly and uh, met so many incredible uh, friends and scientists. Um, in many ways, those years were the most fun because I had, I had very little responsibility in terms of supporting the research. That fell on Danny's very broad and capable shoulder. shoulder. So I could spend my time downstairs in the basement doing cool studies. Um, and then it gave me time to go upstairs and play basketball, uh, and and we played basketball with a lot of the Urnas. Yeah. They really drove drove the games, uh, but we we you know we, we got Danny Pine out there, we got Dennis Charney out there, and Terry Goldberg, and I, lots of the lots of the staff scientists and and some of the really high ranking uh, uh, program and uh, branch directors came out and played. It was really fun. That is- Cool. So cool. those are good times. I don't know if I could manage a game these days, though. To be honest with you, <laughs> but yeah, it, it was great. It was great. Uh, I I really. I think that my career um, trajectory is a reflection of those those years at the NIH. Uh, I learned a lot and I was able to really push into directions that I had never even thought of. Um, And that's a reflection of the general resources and research there, um, as well as Danny's specific uh, program of research at the time. Uh, which really pro, uh, proved to be um, instrumental in my own development.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I've i always often tell people that that doing a postdoc, I mean, you know, it's great. Yeah, the NIH, all these opportunities and, and um, but still, right, doing a postdoc is sort of like academic nirvana because you don't, yeah. like, you, you don't have to worry about anything. You just have to worry and you're kind of at the stage, you don't have to worry about your getting your PhD anymore and you should just right. kind of do stuff.
1: Yeah, exactly. And when you have all of those resources at your fingertips, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's really a shame on you situation if you don't, make the most of it you know you have no one to blame but yourself if it doesn't work out in a way that's true so let's just back up just a second how did you uh sure.
0: you, know, I, I, you know you were you started out you got your phd at ucla with uh, susan bookheimer and, and and you were at college park beforehand at, at that's Maryland right park and yeah and, but how did you start becoming interested in in neuroimaging i guess it was maybe with ucla yeah it was actually
1: slightly before um i i went to the West coast to, uh, to pursue my PhD in neuroscience. I was at Maryland at college park. Uh, and as an undergrad, I was really interested in biology broadly and evolution in particular. And by the time my senior year came around, I really didn't have a plan. And so I scrambled last minute, this is you know to confess that we don't all have everything planned out from the get-go. I scrambled and I was able to get into a master's program there. Um in evolutionary biology. And so I, I and, and that 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 was formative in a couple of ways. I, I worked in a wet lab or, where they were doing uh, research with uh, one one half of the lab was doing research with vampire bats and food sharing and vampire bats, and the other was looking at stockeye flies and sexual dimorphism. And, and so what I learned from that, that was important was that I'm not cut out for wet lab work or field research. So that was good. But but the really the really important moment for me was um, a graduate seminar on animal communication. And as part of uh, that seminar, I learned about what at the time were these you know original initial studies on human language uh, and it's you know the observation of human brain function in real time supporting language. And that just blew me away, Peter. I couldn't believe it. I mean, if I could choose to study any anything, it would be human behavior. And here was an opportunity to look at the biological basis. You know, the organ that that creates behavior is now open to investigation. And that blew me away. And so, in fact, my 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 connections with NIH go back before my postdoc years. Because I was at College Park just up the road, I reached out to a couple of labs to see if there, were, if there was an opportunity for me to just come and help contribute to the research. Yeah. And Jordan Grafman was at NINDS at the time. And he said, sure. He said, sure, come on down. And he, he put me in touch with a couple of his postdocs and trainees. And I was able to at least begin to appreciate what imaging research uh, was like firsthand. And, and I liked it. I really found it to be as powerful and elegant as as the studies that I read suggested. And that's when I applied to PhD programs in neuroscience, ended up at UCLA. Um, It was right at the beginning of the uh, the brain mapping center that John Mazziota and Art Toga created. And I was able to um, work with Susan Buchheimer who remains one of my most important mentors, advisors, and friends. Yeah. And Susan was, was, as she is to this day, involved in a lot of different aspects of um, psychology and neuroscience, including imaging. And she really, it was funny. It's funny how so much of my career is serendipitous, you know, yes. just being, honestly, the, just being open to opportunities that are presented. So yes. when, I, when I got to UCLA, Susan had, had recently started a collaboration with Marian Sigmund, who was an autism researcher, And as part of that research um, at that time, the late 90s, face processing was really uh, of interest. How is it that individuals with autism or on the spectrum process faces differently than typically developing people do? And that's what led to the development of this fMRI task, which for better or worse has been around for over 20 years and has been really widely adopted. And we we can get to the worst part of it maybe later. But so that was, that was how I really got to imaging. It wasn't, um, certainly not like it would be today where imaging is such a, such a leading methodology in the study of human behavior. Um, yeah. it was, it was more on the fringes and I came to it from an interest really in human behavior kind of broadly rather than an interest in, in mental illness right. or, or any kind of clinical features. Yeah.
0: Okay. And, yeah. and- yeah, no, that's actually, and, and you mentioned, I mean, right, you mentioned serendipity. I think that's a recurring theme. And so, I mean, I think, you know, it's all. it seems like it's always serendipity. I mean, it seems like it's always yeah. sort of like, and then the people who are really good at recognizing the opportunities and making the most of them are the ones who sort of carry forward. And I think that, you know, everyone has, you know, tons of opportunity all around them and it's just right. Yeah. Of like yeah, most of that. But yeah, so uh, uh, so at the NIH, I also, yeah. I also remember you were definitely doing great work. And one paper that particularly caught my attention was uh, the paper thats um, looking at the so basically a papers published in science in 2002 on the serotonin transporter, genetic variation, and the response of the human amygdala. Right. Yeah. It was really uh, impressive and it was sort of opened up, you know, the the possibility that you yeah. can see these individual differences and right. and and suggesting that you could, you know, do that with with imaging. So, do you want to talk a little bit about that paper?
1: Sure. So, I came to the NIH in part because I would, you know, I had grown up in that area. And I was ready to, to come back to the East Coast from the West Coast. And Susan Buchheimer had spent time uh, at the NIH and gotten to know Danny Weinberger. And so when she learned that I wanted to go back to the area, she basically said, well, you have to meet with Danny Weinberger. Having no background or, or particular interest in schizophrenia research, I didn't know Danny or, or his work, but I, to this day, as, as I always have, I, I followed Susan's advice uh, and, I, and I've never regretted it. So I came back for a holiday. I met with Danny and within the first like 10 minutes, I knew I would walk through, you know, hot coals for this guy. He was amazing. Yeah. Um, and, and he, the, the thing that really was, was important for me is Danny had this incredible program of research, with many staff scientists, many researchers, postdocs. And he basically welcomed me into that program of research and allowed me to bring my interest in emotion and the amygdala. And really folded in seamlessly with, with, with his own research. And as part of that, it allowed me to begin to explore how genetic variation, common genetic variation, may shape the human yeah. brain and through that affect behavior. Yeah. Um, and so that paper, which, which to this day is the most highly cited paper that I've ever published, it was it was it was a seminal finding um, and it was a breakthrough for me in terms of my career trajectory because it, it allowed me to really carve out a, a an important and kind of unique area, this integration of genetics and imaging. Um, but again, it was really Danny's encouragement. He he basically I remember having a meeting with him and he said, Hey, you know, you're you've got enough data now where you've measured the amygdala using your task. Yeah. Why don't you go and see if there are any differences based on this genetic variant? Again, I didn't know that this genetic variant from any other at the time. And, yeah. and sure enough, Danny's hunches were right. Um, and what we found was that the, the the version of this serotonin transporter polymorphism that had been previously associated with anxiety and depression was associated with uh, higher amygdala response to these threat related facial expressions. And, and so it, it it at least suggested a, a mechanism Yep. A biological mechanism through which a genetic variant may impact behavior by shaping differences in how the brain processes threat. You know, we've learned a lot since then, right? Uh, one thing that's changed tremendously is that original paper, our original submission was that it was with an N of 14, Peter, seven in each of the genotype groups. Yeah. And science, after the reviews, they said, hey, if you can replicate it, we'll be interested in publishing this. And so we, we had another 14 people and we were 28 people, 28 subjects in total, Peter. You know, you you could never do that work and you should never do that work now. You know, we know that single genetic variants uh, are unlikely to have any kind of meaningful uh, impact on brain function in in the sense that it's going to be expressed downstream in behavior or clinical symptoms. Um, We've moved to the GWAS model. Um, the Enigma consortium has been really, uh, really powerful in driving that forward, driving imaging and genetics forward in a more reliable and powerful way. And we've, we, have like most others, have shifted from any single variant uh, model to polygenic scores. Um, and there are pros and cons to that. You know, one of the things that was really attractive about the single variants is to hone in on mechanism, right? So there's the transporter. We, we know what it does. We know where it's expressed and if there's subtle differences in its expression based on a genetic variant, wow, that's telling us something specific about the biochemistry that that shapes the function, the functional circuitry, and in turn behavior. The polygenic scores take us away, at least currently, from that kind of mechanistic viewpoint because they aggregate across the whole genome, across many variants that are unlikely to be directly functional. Yeah, yeah. To just generate a, but the signal is robust, the signal is reliable, so that's really the, the way that imaging genetics has gone. And I think for the, for the betterment of, of the field and, and ultimately our understanding of how genes shape the brain and in turn behavior.
0: Yeah. And even stepping back a little bit, I mean, it occurred to me also that, you know, using your evolutionary biology background. Um, yeah. Uh, right. I mean, there's something like this that is selected for, that might be useful Evolutionary you know, to be more, you know, aware and vigilant or anxious about certain things. But then at the yeah. same time, it has a flip side, potentially that affects, you know, potential behavior in society. So it's yeah. it's interesting sort of touches on things like that. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And we, I mean, we can have a lot of fun talking about it. Like this notion of group selection that, you know, the, the, the forces that shape the, the individual genetic variation may be actually uh, open to group factors, right? So within any group, a tribe, let's say in our ancient history, it was probably beneficial to have some individuals who were highly anxious and highly vigilant for threat because they yeah. could they could inform the rest of the group. Right. You don't want everyone to be that way. You want some of them to so David Goldman who is, you know, of course, uh, a leading scientist at NIH, he had a model with another variant COMT where he called one variant the warrior gene and the other the warrior warrior warrior. So, you know, again, these were all really they were really attractive models and theories the data really don't support the impact of any single variant outside of disease mutations. Of course, there are certain variants that are causal, right. but the ones that we are likely going to be able to leverage to better understand things like mental illness are not going to be of that ilk. They're going to be small effects distributed across the genome, but we just keep pushing forward. That's, that's the best we can do is let the science lead us forward. That's one of the things that I took away from my, my experience with Danny. He would always say, let the science trump. You may want this, you may that someone else may want the other. Let the data take you forward.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that right. And as far as the field is concerned, the data about replicability uh, yes. uh, is is something that it's it's interesting. A lot of researchers, uh, including myself, to some degree have had a blind spot. Yeah. You know, we, we always understood, yeah, it was a small effect. I mean, so let's let's sort of maybe transition into your more yeah. recent paper, but, sure. and, and the idea is there is that, you know, we always understand there's variability. There's a small effect size. It's like a 1% single change. And then if you try to modulate a task, then there's even less of a change you're looking yeah. for. You get good group results. And and then yeah. everyone's trying to reduce the, the variability. And we can maybe talk about that maybe later in the context of the paper of like yeah. you know, banner, the subjects or responses. Absolutely. Analysis. And, but everyone feels like, okay, well, it's close enough. We can still do something. And, and mm-hmm. it's hard to get an intuitive feel of the statistics. Yeah and and your paper i think brought out it kind of helped us hone that into intuition yeah of- so, and, and so just the paper I'm talking about is your, is your paper that came out in, in psychological science in 2020, uh, what is the test, retest, reliability of common task functional MRI measures, new empirical evidence and meta-analysis. And the first author was, uh, Maxwell Elliott. And so,
1: yep, yeah. So I should, I should certainly recognize Max's contributions here. Max is an absolutely brilliant graduate student. He's actually leaving for internship. Um, he came he was an undergrad at Minnesota and he worked in Angus McDonald's lab. But I think what was what was more relevant in terms of Max's contributions in this area is that Minnesota as a whole has long had a, had a history, a tradition of measurement, of being interested in how we measure things. And this is something that remarkably captured Max's interest as an undergrad. And so he's a self-confessed measurement geek. <laughs> um, and so he and my uh, lead research analyst, Anshin Kanat, really spearheaded the work that is presented in this paper that was published last year in Psych Science. And just just as a brief aside, one of the one important way that we got to this step uh, in our own research progress goes back to the serotonin transporter. What, one of the things that happened as a result of our paper is that um, a group led by Ashlam Caspi and Temi Moffat published a subsequent paper in Science the following year showing the, one really one of the first um, demonstrations of a gene-environment interaction, which is very controversial in and of itself, right? <laughs> yeah. And so what they were able to show is that the, the same variant that we associated with higher amygdala response predicted greater depression in interaction with stressful life events. Okay. And, and again, everything just seemed to align so yeah. well, so powerfully. But the important thing was... That those two papers connected us together and we met, we became very, very quickly good friends. Um, and even you know, 20 years ago, started to fantasize about collaborating. They've been following a, a group of a thousand people in New Zealand uh, since they were born in 1972, and they've published incredible papers, just one after another, after another across the lifespan, what early factors shape, you know, adulthood, what factors in adulthood shape later life, and now in midlife, what factors shape aging, maybe we can talk about that at the end. But in in 2015, we were finally I came to Duke, I was at Pittsburgh, they came to Duke, they kind of really lobbied me to join them. And I'm really glad that I did. Uh, But in 2015, we were finally able to get the funding to go down to New Zealand and collect the first set of MRI scans in this a population representative birth cohort. Because it's a longitudinal study, we always had an eye on rescanning them, collecting multiple waves of scanning. And so that really put our feet to the fire when it came to the issue of reliability. Yeah. In other words, if, if we want to argue that changes are happening in these individuals based on physiology or experience, lifestyle, we need to be confident in our measurement of those of those changes. Um, And in fact, I'll share with you another kind of element of this. The first time we submitted the grant to try to get funding for this project, we Mm -hmm. went to a, a section that focused on epidemiology and Peter, they tore us apart, and the, the main criticism was, and I, I don't know any of the details, but they they argued again, not without any specifics, that well, it's becoming well known that fMRI is a wholly unreliable measurement. So why should we give you all this money to collect measures that, that we know are unreliable? And we thought, well, okay, let's let's see if we can understand this. And like you were saying, we kind of we have our blind spots. Um, And the literature is so expansive that you can find one or two studies to support a particular, you know, platform. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Which is which is really dangerous. It's a slippery slope. And and we have to kind of guard against that, that kind of, of, you know, kind of confirmation bias of sorts. Yeah. So. You know, we 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 were able to find, not surprisingly, enough studies that suggest the decent reliability of task fMRI measures that we were able to get the funding. But one of the things we made certain of is as part of this project, we wanted to collect test-retest data, and we did. Yes. And so it was really um, in the service of this longitudinal. Long-term project uh, of wanting to see how the brains of these people change over time and what that means for their health and their aging. That we got into test-retest reliability. I, I had no background, no <laughs> knowledge of this. You know, it's, it's it's awful, it's shameful. But I didn't. I have to confess. Yeah, yeah. I've really learned a lot. And one of the important things that I learned in doing the work in our own data set, as well as through the Human Connectome Project data set and meta-analysis of the of the published literature is this very old history described by Lee Kronbach of the experimental versus correlational model in psychology. Okay. And cognitive neuroscience, where, you know, I, I grew up, I, I cut my teeth, is based on this experimental model of psychology, where you want to minimize the differences between individuals in order to be able to maximize your opportunity to see a main effect, a group effect, yes. and, and that and fMRI task fMRI has been incredibly powerful in illuminating how the human brain, on average, accomplishes any number of tasks, from simple perceptual tasks to more complex social tasks. Yes, it's great at that. And we have no qualms with that. And despite media reports, otherwise, we we have never intended to suggest that task fMRI isn't very well suited to do exactly that to identify average patterns or reveal how the typical human brain accomplishes tasks, right? Right. But one of the things that that I learned is that that experimental model is built on design principles and assumptions that necessarily preclude or limit its applicability to looking at individual differences, which historically was part of this correlational model of research. Yeah. And as we as we. Kind of briefly in the space that we had suggest in our psych science paper, and, and we, we have unpacked it a bit more in a forthcoming paper in trends in cognitive sciences. Um, just to put in a little plug there. Yeah, 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 definitely. definitely. I, I think what happened for me, and, I, and I'll just speak for myself, is I saw th- these tasks producing robust group activations and and you know you, you run the task at NIH, you run it at UCLA, you run it in Berlin, you run it in you know in Auckland, you get the same thing. you get these really robust group activation map maps. Yes, And I made, I made the assumption that robust group activation maps can be used to look at reliable individual differences. Yeah.
0: So just to, just to clarify that a little bit, I mean, with people, I think, and this is actually, this is the part of your paper also that I, that I, that caused me pause because I'm thinking, right, I mean, a lot of tasks are designed, yeah, like you said, to minimize individual differences. So you can have a strong group effect. And it's interesting to start to think about, you know, what type of tasks would stratify would, yeah. would help to stratify differences.
1: Absolutely.
0: You know, I don't think we've really begun, you know, there's naturalistic movies, there's yeah. um, things like that, but it's not clear if there's a science of stratification.
1: They're certainly not in, in imaging. imaging. Yeah. And, yeah. and I would say not even in physiological measurements uh, more broadly. Uh, Lauren Alloy, one of Lauren Alloy's uh, PhD students has published a paper where they introduced this term physiometrics. So in psychology, Psychometrics is an entire discipline or subdiscipline that's focused on exactly these questions. Yeah, um, item response theory, you know, classical test theory, generalizability theory. There are methods um, available, long-standing methods to to try and design probes, design inventories, design measures that do isolate in a reliable way individual differences. It's just yeah. that it hasn't been a part of our work.
0: Yeah, no, I think I think in our work, our our intuition is such that like, you know, you do something and like, for instance, I'm just thinking in in the analogy of like running. Okay, like you, you run a race, 5K or whatever, and you know, then you'll have a certain distribution of times. yeah And yeah, sure, if you group, you know, men versus women or something like that, you might get a group difference. And maybe the idea is that, well, with a 5K race, you get a certain distribution, but maybe you really pull it out with like a 10K race or a 100-mile right. yeah. race or something yeah. like that where you where yeah. things get more spread out maybe, yes. something like that.
1: Yeah, that's actually, that's a brilliant analogy, Peter, because one of the ways that the field is is tackling this issue of reliability, if not directly, certainly indirectly, is through precision fMRI or pFMRI, where you it's all about data aggregation. So much like your analogy, you probably learn more about the true running capacity of an individual the further you push them out The more data, the more bold data we collect, the better the estimation of individual variation, individual differences in let's say intrinsic connectivity. And, and, you know, we can talk about the pros and cons of this precision FMRI model later, but data aggregation is certainly one way forward. Yeah. uh, uh, And it's one of many that that we and others are considering. I think with data aggregation, with precision FMRI, there's a very um, striking kind of, a striking burden on participants, right? It's one thing to be in the midnight scan club and to volunteer to be scanned for a couple of hours or to be Russ Poldrack and, you know, on a weekly or daily basis, yeah. scan yourself. It's another thing to get, you know, to take individuals with autism or individuals with schizophrenia or, you know, or even kids yeah, and get that kind of data. Um, there are very, I think there are very important cases where precision fMRI should be used even now, like, in localizing targets for dbs yeah. or other forms of neuromodulation yes. but one of the things that that you know that are dovetailing with reproducibility replicability reliability is to move imaging into population representative studies where we can really understand the true effect sizes Yes. That can be expected. And I don't think we can, we, you know, we can't, we certainly can't go back down to New Zealand and scan our 900 study members for two, three hours. It just, right. we couldn't afford it. They wouldn't do it. So while data aggregation is one approach, I think there are others that may be even more applicable and useful in, a, in the larger context of studying, you know, the human brain.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I got ahead of myself a little bit. So definitely, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> so I definitely will. That is a that is a great discussion of like how, what the solutions are. But let's just back up sure. just a little bit. So yeah. the main finding of your paper, essentially, the right. main thrust to your paper, uh, you use a term uh, that everyone is learning if they don't know already, is the interclass correlation
1: coefficient. Right. Yep.
0: You know, it's basically. I mean, without without uh, going into too much detail about it, I mean, yeah. it's basically inversely proportional to like the group distribution in some sense. Yeah. And there's different ways of measuring it, or different types of data you can use to measure it. But yes. with fMRI, you really lay this out nicely in this paper, and yeah. you say. Well,
1: thank you, Peter.
0: Oh, well, sure. Well, no, it's a great. It was a really nice paper in that regard. I mean, and you. Did, it looks like you. You know, your paper was two parts. I mean, you scoured the literature, which seemed like it was just a ton of work. Um, yeah. And then you. Yeah. And then you looked at these. these large uh, group data sets as well. But, you know, the findings were a little bit uh, right. I mean, more than a little bit uh, disturbing in some sense where the, uh, you know, the ICC necessary for like making statements with the number of subjects is, you know, it has to be pretty high. And you found that most studies had about an ICC of 0.3 or something like that.
1: Yes, sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, we were disturbed more than any other. And in fact, I remember early on having conversations if not with, you know, my immediate colleagues in my own head about like, what do we do with this? We know this now. At minimum, we knew that we were not going to continue to publish individual differences, analyses using task fmri And in fact, if you look at our publications for the last, you know, three or four years, other than papers that were in, in the channel we we focused on structural measures because of their their relatively high reliability, and that's interesting in itself. Like why yeah. why
0: is it, I, I, that jumped out at me in the paper that yeah. that somehow the variation in structure is much less, but it's it is more telling. You know, it does vary though with with disease.
1: Yeah, we uniformly find um, ICCs. These tests retest reliability. In other words. You know, how consistently does a measure reflect the underlying target or construct, the true score versus the error score in, in structures 0.9 or higher, yeah. cortical thickness, surface area, subcortical volumes, even you know, FA, it's amazing. It, it really is. And, I, and I, you would know much better than I would, Peter, if, to what extent that reflects the, the, the precision with which you know, we can measure structure versus function. Clearly, there's more noise when we're looking at the bold signal. Yeah, But for that reason, I think we have, we, we currently lean heavily on structural measures in our work, our work, we can talk about this later, we've we've transitioned to, to becoming interested in midlife brain structure, um, and what it can tell us about an individual's likely uh, risk for developing Alzheimer's and other dementias as they age. Yeah. Um, and in that literature, the, the, the more clinically kind of applicable measures are all structural, yeah. you know, cortical thickness, hippocampal volume, um, white matter hyperintensities. These are all structural features of the brain that have, at least in comparison to task, fMRI, or even resting or intrinsic uh, measures have reached a level of at least being clinically informative, if not diagnostic. Yeah. And I think that that, that can't not be related to their, their, to their higher reliability. Yeah, exactly.
0: So, yeah. So going into the, I mean, this is, that sort of is a good lead into all the sources, right? You know, like why is it with that fMRI is, is somehow uh, is, is less uh reliable. I mean, you know, and, and it's interesting, it's near and dear to my heart because yeah, I I, you know in this in the context where I'm a core facility director we had a researcher we have a researcher who you know has 100 like 250 subjects or something like that and it's a very subtle task of looking at modulation of uh, it's like a gambling task and it's looking at Mm -hmm. depression and we're having a hard time you know it's like he exactly came to me and said oh look our ICCs are really low and the, the initial thought was there's a problem with the scanner. And right. check the scanner, scanner's fine. And, and could it be war? Could it be shimming? Could it be like the placement of the, the ROIs, like that variability? And I think we're starting to arrive at the thought that, I mean, certainly, you know, you have different subjects, you have all kinds of variability in their physiology. Sure. You know, and also with the pre-processing too. I mean, there's yeah. all sorts of oh, yeah. variability in that. We, we, we started to get to the idea that, well, it seems like the subject response variability yeah. might be driving this. Uh, it, it's, so it's not an MRI thing necessarily. I mean, certainly these variables are bad, but it seems like during the study, subjects don't always behave as you expect them to. And, you, exactly, and it yeah. seems like monitoring that was potentially explanatory of
1: this. I, you yeah. know, I don't know
0: what you think of that.
1: I certainly think that accounting for that kind of variability is it will help improve the reliability at the, the reliability of estimating brain activation. Yeah. But honestly, I, and this is a question that came up when our paper was first published, especially from different media uh, outlets. Is is it is it a problem with the scanner? And I, I would absolutely say no. This is not a problem with MRI. It's a problem with how we have how we are. Applying MRI, and, and and I think I think it really falls much more on the side of the tasks and how they were developed. Again, going back to this experimental versus correlational framework. Yes, the vast majority of tasks that I'm familiar with, whether it's our faces task or the monetary incentive delay task, they just were never developed from the ground up to look at individual differences. This yeah. is not this is not only task fMRI, by the way. Like the Stroop task, yeah, has relatively poor Test retest reliability at the level of individual—it's right around point 0.4 as well. Yeah, and this yeah. has been used in psychology for decades, right? Yes, but not developed to look at individual differences, but yeah. at this and how the average human brain deals with incongruity and resolves incongruity. Yes, and what can we do? I think. We can do a lot of things, and and certainly working with with you, Peter, and and other experts in, in the technology is going to be important. One thing that we're excited about, at least in terms of the potential, is multi echo fMRI. Okay, great. <laughs> so Chuck, I, you, you may know, I mean, you know, you definitely know this better than I do, but Lynch and colleagues, Chuck Lynch and John Power. Um, working with Faith Gunning and Connor Liston at at Cornell published a really incredible paper in Cell Reports where they showed that 10 minutes of multi-echo produces much better, much more reliable measures of intrinsic connectivity and even task-based patterns of of connectivity than 30 minutes of single-echo data. Yes, yeah. So, you know, that gives us hope that we can we can perhaps accomplish precision measurement in far less than, you know, 90 minutes, 120 minutes, three hours. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think multi echo again, I, I should I, I'm speaking out of school here with you, Peter. But <laughs> right. I think it minimized part of it is minimizing some of the noise, the non physiological bold noise. And, right. and you, if I understand correctly, you can even tweak it to make sure that you're targeting certain regions of interest like the amygdala or the thalamus or the cerebellum in yeah. a way that you get better signal.
0: Yeah, you can certainly use the, you know, the shorter echoes in the areas that have susceptibility dropout. Yeah. Yeah. No, actually, well obviously I'm definitely a huge proponent of yes. multi-echo.
1: Yeah. We and that's something if if we're going to, well, I shouldn't say if, but when we continue our fMRI research in terms of new data collection, we're absolutely going to use multi-echo. You know, unless something even better is available, um, it's clear to us that multi-echo is the way to go. Yeah. Um, and so what I hope we've, we've been able to do with our paper, Peter, is just to, just to bring a higher level of awareness to this limitation. Some people don't really want to acknowledge it. They yeah. want to just going forward business as usual. We absolutely are not going to do that. And I don't think we're going to get anywhere if we continue to, the, to do that. Now, what we hope is having brought this to a higher level of awareness, many people like yourself and others are going to pitch in and help figure out solutions. I don't think it's going to come from one source. I think it has to. Be from the technology side. It has to be from the stimulus design side. From from the observation and measurement of individuals over time. You know, understanding uh, you know intrinsic sources of variation and accounting for those modeling approaches. We 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 it's a big problem. So it's going to require a lot of yeah. to to solve.
0: And I think it's important to have that point come across that your paper isn't saying stop doing fMRI. It's no. just saying, I mean, I, I think a lot of people interpret it as like, oh, well, you know, uh, you know, people worry that, right. oh, our, our grants aren't going to get funded if we even mention fMRI because right. now we're worried about that too, by the way. <laughs> this
1: is not just, it, it really is our worry as well. Yeah.
0: But I think it's an important point. Yeah. To, to say, look, you know, maybe multi-echo, maybe better reporting metrics of, of time yes. series stability. Absolutely. So you can actually then go back and sort of maybe bin, uh, not really in a biased way, but sort of an objective way based yeah. on the stability, understanding even some people even argue that, uh, and this is sort of along the lines of stratification. Some people argue that, you know, like in the ABCD study, you have, you, you have these pre-selected categories of subjects. Right. Maybe if you let the data speak for itself, the categories may not be the correct categories and you might right. have data-driven categorization that will pull out an increased effect size.
1: That gets us right into the heart of psychometrics. Which is allowing the data to tell you something important about the measure. Yeah. Uh, so item level uh, response theory. This can be applied to imaging data. Yeah. You know, you can do split half reliability of a scan. You could do item level modeling. Yeah. Late variables, I think, are going to be really powerful in helping advance reliability.
0: Yeah. And also, and right, along those lines too, I think that's one thing that your paper mentioned, but it didn't, uh, it's really hard, obviously, to do the analysis of, but but I yeah. think you know multivariate analysis yeah. uh, of, the, of the FMRI data has a chance to sort of yeah. leverage a little bit more power Absolutely. in some regard.
1: And there are papers out there that show better reliability with multivariate analyses or you know multivoxal pattern analysis. There are a number right. of ways to go about it. And I think those are great. It's, it's one way to make the most of the imaging data that so many of us have already collected um, and, and to move that forward. I think that's true. The other thing that we have done and others are, are doing is we're, we're basically combining all the bold data in any given data set, be it task or resting state, just to serve it, it, the function of data aggregation. Yeah. Uh, we published a, Max uh, Elliot published a paper in 2018 showing that If you combine task and rest data, both in the Dunedin study and in the HCP data set, and then you estimate intrinsic connectivity, you get more reliable estimates with the concatenated kind of total data set, which which he calls general functional connectivity, than you do with certainly the task alone, but but even with rest alone. Yes. We understand that the the need to be able to use the data we have on hand in, in the most effective way Beyond that, I think we have to push to new approaches, adopt new strategies. That's going to require an investment on the part of funders because we don't know. We don't have the answers. We have ideas. There's suggested evidence available now, but we we need to dedicate a lot of effort and resources to better understanding, reliability, uh, and developing strategies where we can maximize individual differences if we have any hopes of clinical translation yeah this is this again this has i think this has very little to do with cog neuro cognitive neuroscience in the in the um, traditional sense i think task fmri and small end studies can still help us drive our understanding of the typical human brain of you know of what the human brain is capable of and how it's capable of creating behavior and lots of other things yeah but we really have to pivot we pivoted very kind of casually and in, in retrospect carelessly from that model to the individual differences model. Right. And now we, we, we really have to acknowledge that that kind of mistake in a way um, or oversight. And we have to move ahead in a way that's much more systematic.
0: Yeah. So it, it also just occurred to me just now that um, yeah. you know, I'm trying to think back of uh, some studies that seem like they strike me as more convincing uh, in yeah. some sort. And it seems that there have been a lot of studies that you know show uh, intelligence, like you know uh, yeah. IQ, uh, yeah. and they seem like they show good results. Well, maybe that's because these IQ tests have been designed to pull apart individual differences better.
1: Absolutely. In fact, in, in psychology, the gold standard for test-retest reliability of measures is IQ, and it's because there have been decades, if not centuries, of investment in IQ testing, and and especially at items, specific items that will tease apart differences between individuals in their intelligence yes that is exactly what we need to bring to bear when we want to look at brain when we want to look at brain function in particular yeah yeah iq is the perfect example i i i for one and and i know others are very very confident or at least very optimistic in the applicability of those those types of measurement principles to imaging Yes, I think it's I know it's happening. I see the literature like the Lynch paper I mean, that takes a slightly different approach. But we, we, we've we mentioned already the naturalistic um, stimuli, movie viewing. Um, there's data that suggests that that type of, of experience in the scanner is not only more ecologically valid, it's closer to our real world experiences, but it actually helps us identify more reliable individual differences. Yes, it, yes. it doesn't constrain individuals to process information in a very rigid experimental way.
0: Yeah. And also mu- movie viewing is, is more efficient. I mean, it's sort of packed with this information and right. it's tricky to analyze. I mean, you can do, you know, there's different views of how to properly analyze that, you know, starting out with models of various aspects of the movie or just looking at cross subject correlation like Emily Finn.
1: Yes. That's a great, great example. Great example. Um, and, and But, you know, it's interesting that there are already now a number of fully annotated you know movie stimuli that that you that can be adopted in addition to doing multi-echo i we are very strongly you know considering doing naturalistic uh, uh stimuli because our our goal is individual differences is to measure individual differences so we are going to bring as many of the available strategies to bear on this issue um, and hopefully create a new model, a new paradigm that is exportable, that can be adopted and, and lead to translational findings. But you have like a,
0: a metric like So you have like, you know, the ICC, yeah. which is a great metric.
1: Yeah, there's there's internal consistency, right? So there's Cronbach's alpha that's good. And and honestly, the the more measures of validity and reliability, the better. One of the things that we we suggested in our psych science paper is is that we should adopt as a field, a standard of reporting these measures in any study that's focused on individual differences. So if you want to show that activation, be it multivariate or be it a task ROI, a main effect contrast value... If you want to show that that is relevant for understanding, let's say, anxiety or an individual's future risk for depression, then I think we have to have minimum reporting standards yes. so, so the reader can interpret and, and and be able to conclude, OK, how valid are these conclusions? Right. That, I think, is a minimum that we, yeah. we really need to expect. And, and I, I, I've heard from various journals and editors that they, they are seriously considering adopting these standards like they have for replicability. Right. So their journals now... If you wanna publish a genetic association study, you better have at least one replication sample. Yes, It really needs to be an independent replication sample. I think similar, again, pushing imaging and pushing functional imaging to translational and clinical applications and biomarker development, these are minimum standards we have to adopt.
0: Yeah, I completely I completely agree. But do you think, and we talked a little bit about the clinical application of fMRI certainly, and, and yeah. the reason why pre-surgical mapping works is just right. it's just like a main effect. And so you just see something You don't, you're not trying to tease apart differences. That's right. And, and also, as you mentioned, sort of maybe looking for, you know, places to neuromodulate uh, in that regard, or even epileptic foci or things like that might be useful. But as far as like using, like, let's say we even have a pretty good measures of individual differences with a large enough data set. Yeah. Uh, And let's say, so to actually, translate that, like coming up with like a, it would be, you know, like one of the holy grails of fMRI right. Is to have uh, templates,
1: uh, right. That's
0: sort of like a, 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 oh, this is the activation pattern that needs to, you need to see to predict this treatment with a drug or, you know, to help diagnose, differentially diagnose this person with anxiety. And you differentiate in the paper between individual differences and in clinical applications. Yeah. Do you think there's hope for that? I mean, even if we can, absolutely,
1: yeah, (laughs) absolutely. I, I, I do, I do. I, I, as much as it may appear from that paper last year that that you know we're giving up on TASCa from RI, that that couldn't be further from the truth, Peter. Yeah, we want to do it better. We need to do it better, and so we we have accepted this challenge. Yeah, Uh, I think we can get there. Now, it's interesting. Where these kind of clinical cutoffs come from is a bit of a mystery. You know, there, there are like a, literally a handful of papers that have established these kind of criteria for what's poor, what's average, what's good, what's excellent reliability and what's, what should be clinically applicable versus not. So like 0.8 is often used as a, an ICC of A. is like, okay, this is a clinically meaningful measure. Now, generally speaking, of course we want the reliability to be as high as possible when we're making decisions about an individual's health. Right. So we need to know that measuring ambulatory blood pressure, it, we can do it reliably because we're going to decide whether we give this person a, a you know, a, a hypertensive medication based on the re- results. Yeah. Now, we we are moving forward with kind of again based on an unfortunately kind of more of a historical legacy of like 0.75 or above, even 0.6 or above, I think is is at least workable as long as we're reporting what the reliabilities are. I think yeah. transparency is key, yeah, and then it'll allow the field to move forward more confidently, yeah. But I really think that. Studying reliability in and of itself is something that we need to become better at, right? So in, in, in the Dunedin study, we looked at test retest in 20 participants. In HCP, I think it's 45. Is that enough? Yeah. Probably not. Should we do it in more and larger groups, more variable groups of individuals? Absolutely, right? So I think that just kind of the measurement of reliability and what, what the parameters really should be, how we optimize the parameters in terms of sample size, that the interval, you know, what's the right interval? Yeah. Is it a week? Is it two days? Is it a month? Yeah, we don't have the answers. And those are those are really basic questions that I think, again, if we don't answer now, we might regret 10 years from now. Yeah. Okay. Oh, look, well, all our test retest work was based on an interval of two months. And, it, and now we know that two months is too short or two months is way too long. Yeah, it's it's a challenge, you know. It's it like I said, it's it's a big problem. But I, but I for one am committed to helping solve it. Uh, I, I I I have no confidence that we that we individually will solve it. But I have great confidence that collectively we can do it. Yeah, we've, we've done you know great things as as a field, and I am confident we'll, we'll continue to do it with Task from RI.
0: Yeah. And I think that your paper really did sort of tip the field to say, hey, wait a second. I mean, and obviously there's many other papers that have been sort of pushing in that direction, but I think your paper yeah. was nice in the sense it sort of laid it out. And I think that we're, yeah, we're just, we're just at the very beginning of really understanding the nature of the problem. It's clear that- there probably will be a solution uh, yeah. as far as this is concerned. So it's, it's got to do the it
1: work closer. It may be closer than we even, than I even realize. like, again, the multi-echo stuff is phenomenal. phenomenal. <laughs> well, I'm glad you say that. I've I, been involved in that development, right, Peter? Yeah,
0: no, we've been pushing it. You know, my, my graduate student Prantik Kundu
1: yeah.
0: developed the the whole multi-echo I see it, so the issue with multi-echo is that, um, yeah, we're still trying to figure out the best way to analyze okay. multi-echo. So, but yeah, he pushed these really nice ways of of looking at multi-echo. Uh, and definitely, I totally agree. I'm 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 completely yeah. in the multi. <laughs> we've been, we've been developing multi. I've been doing multi-echo for thirty years since yeah. the beginning almost.
1: So, so Peter, I, I'm curious like, if you could turn the tables a second. Why why hasn't it been adopted more routinely and more rapidly? Yeah, In a hardware
0: question. So this is a this is another one of my uh, uh, sort of things that I that I sort of rant on sometimes. But uh, um, yeah. <laughs> and it, it's the whole idea that you know we use clinical scanners uh, for fMRI. and we and it's been hugely beneficial to the field to do that. However, clinical vendors they're focused on the clinical market and yeah. fMRI is not a clinical market, and so right. they don't really make it easy uh, for. People to develop and distribute these novel pulse sequences.
1: Gotcha. So they don't come stock with uh, when you buy the, the Siemens Prisma or the latest GE scanner. They don't come as part of the stock sequences.
0: No, not yet. And unless there's a different clinical application that's already there for multi echo, they might develop it and they might allow us people with research agreements to share it. But it really hasn't permeated the field enough. Huh. And and I totally agree with you that if there were only a mechanism by which the vendors were a little bit more open to sort of having more of a platform for catalyzing these clinical applications of fMRI, that's probably one of the big reasons why fMRI hasn't sort of entered into the clinic, even for the other things as much, because it's just, you know, you have to have these custom made environments for doing fMRI, which most clinicians, you know, you want to push a button and see the results and, and it's hard.
1: Well, I mean, you know, if, if what, what is happening now will help with that push, to have the, the big clinical vendors adopt multi-echo because it's like this old, old, uh, this old adage is like, we'd hire you, but you don't have enough experience. Right. right. Well, how do you get oh, experience? We, right. we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll load, we'll load multi-echo if it has clinical applications. Well, we need to have multi-echo to demonstrate yeah. applications. And, and
0: this is the nature of a lot of my discussions with vendors for the last 20 years is, is uh, exactly this. And yeah. to their credit, all the vendors have a version of multi-echo I think right now. Let's, yeah. Okay. But it's just not, you know, we have this website called Tdana, which is T E uh, data analysis T E, if people can use these packages for processing it.
1: Oh, that's great!
0: And, and so I think that hopefully, with people like yourself mentioning the results yeah. of this, is it would be it would be great because I think actually you know I've had good discussions with other other groups who you know like the the connectome dataset. Their their track is not to do multi echo, but was was more to do sh- very short T R. Okay. And their, their thought was that if short TR, you can model the noise better and get rid of it better. So, and that was an argument for a while. And I think that's true, but I think now we can have both with there's fast yeah. imaging sequences. We can have short TR and multi-echo to some degree. Yeah. I really do think I agree with you that multi-echo is, yeah. is a hugely powerful thing because it gets directly at susceptibility contrast exactly. fluctuations.
1: Fundamentally, you know, what we need to do is better isolate true, true score from error, whether it's... From the, the acquisition side or the, you know, the stimulus side, um, that should be the ultimate goal. And, and, we're, and we're getting there. Again, I'm I am very much encouraged by what's already happening in the last couple of years. Uh, and so hopefully we can, you know, when we get back down to New Zealand and start to scan study members, we can get you on board to help us make sure we're doing multi-echo the, the best possible way, Peter.
0: Sure. Happy to help. Happy to help. Yeah. 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 So, okay. So, so that's good that there's definitely hope on this.
1: Absolutely. It's you know, I, I, I'm not about doom and gloom. I'm an optimistic person. And uh, I think we just push, push forward. We just keep working hard. The, The thing we can't do is ignore it. Yeah. We can't bury our heads in the sand and say, you know what? I've got findings like, you know, in 2015, we published a paper in Neuron where we showed that, you know, the amygdala response in a, in a fairly large group of young adults, several hundred young adults, variability in that signal was predictive of their later reporting of depression and anxiety. And we thought, wow, maybe we've got a biomarker here. Yeah. But of course, now we know that we got lucky, basically. I mean, there's no way of really getting around it. We, were, we, were, we captured this in our data set, but now knowing the reliability of our tasks, we have no confidence that it can be exported to do so again and again in a reliable way in, in different populations at different times in order to have prognostic value. And that's ultimately what we want, uh, is we want to be able to predict how individuals will, will evolve over time and, and how their experiences will will shape, shape that evolution through the interaction with their brain. Yeah, yeah. But so, you know, but, I mean, part of the issue that you know, we certainly don't have time to get into here is... You know, why are there so many papers showing the amygdala is associated with anxiety or variability and stress responsiveness? You know, there are a lot of papers, you know, there's a file drawer problem. I think we all have, we know about it if we don't address it directly. I think there are a lot of null findings that just never make it into the literature. And another kind of historical legacy of of from RI is I think there has been a way too permissive environment for analysis. Yes. I'm going to take the max voxel. I'm going to use the mean cluster. I'm going to do a five millimeter sphere around that. And you know what? We, we've we been getting away with that because we don't have a standard. We need a standard. Exactly right. Yeah. It's very difficult to, to see that kind of continued strategy ever resulting in clinical clinically applicable measures because- you're not gonna get the same max voxel in your data I, set I get in my data set. So yeah. it's all and I totally <laughs>
0: agree. And actually that's what OHPM, you know, I just had an interview with people at the, the standards committee, uh, you know, trying to come up with best practices so that we can all agree on. And not making it rigid and persistent, yes. but but at least having something that we can base.
1: Yeah, and and, and certainly if, if we can get OHBM, of course, to, to promote it. And then if we can, I think we need to get the best journals and the, the editors to, to appreciate the importance of it and to really expect it from papers that are submitted for publication. Yes. Uh, yes. I think that, that ultimately is going to determine whether people adopt it or not adopt it, whether we can establish standards. It's time, right? It's yeah. it's overdue to have these standards. And I, I'm not saying this because I'm trying to sling mud at others. We've done this. Right. You know, our analytic framework has changed. Yeah. At uh, the time. And, it, it, you know, structural measures have kind of uh, have been so much more solid in that sense. Right. Right. There's less parameters, though. I mean, there's less parameters. Absolutely. It's easier to do for sure. But, you know, I, I think it's wonderful that OHBM is is pushing for this uh, because I, I don't think we're going to make the kind of progress that we all want and hope for without those standards.
0: Yeah. Well, that's great. I, I totally I totally agree with that. And we can't do this fast enough. But, it, but you're right. It right. is a sort of balance because, you know, we're all trying to figure out what the best thing to do is. We don't want to cut off possible avenues. But at the same right. time, we have to have some way to have an objective way of, of, of assessing. Yeah.
1: Yes, absolutely, Peter.
0: Well, cool. This has been this has been a really important, and I really think that, that this is a great discussion on on everything yeah. from you know your results to just one thing to to sort of end this one small part with uh, uh, as we ramped out is that you know like sure. there's still people who who do small end studies and yeah. there's still a purpose for I mean there's still a place for that. Sure,
1: absolutely. For me, those small end studies, including many that I conducted early on in my career, are gave us the first inklings of where to look. You know, what's happening? I, I you know, again, if the, the listener leaves our conversation with anything, I hope it's that Task fMRI has been such an incredibly valuable tool. And we've learned so much about the human brain. We are not in any way trying to impugn the importance and value of that. What we want to do is we want to be able to transition, to leverage, to pivot from that in a, in a more careful and, and kind of optimized way to be able to move into individual differences in those very basic human processes that fMRI has been absolutely seminal in revealing.
0: Yeah, well, I'm excited to see what how things will, will keep on going forward. Me too,
1: me Re- too, mm-hmm. Peter. <laughs> So is there, anything, is there anything
0: you want to part with? I mean, I, it's been fun to watch your career progress. I mean, you, now uh, you're you. extremely—you know—you're you're doing amazingly well, and and you're—you know—I'm
1: just happy we could talk about my career that I have a career to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. I nothing, so take nothing for granted.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's true. I guess that's true, but. But, and and certainly, you know, just looking at your Google Scholar, uh, you have tons of papers and you're doing really well and so many different things. And maybe we'll have to have you back to talk about other things, too.
1: I would love to do that. This is so much fun, Peter. I would love to do that. So, you know, we have really changed our, our program, our program of research. I think if there's anything that has been characteristic of our program is that there's nothing that's characteristic necessarily. That in part is a reflection of, of my own kind of scientific curiosity and kind of being pulled in different directions, as well as where our collaborative research has taken us. That has been, you know, if, if I can kind of encourage young investigators or even senior investigators to pursue more collaboration, I, that's what I would do because it takes you into areas of science where you learn and you have an opportunity to educate as well. Yeah, because of this, a lot of our resources, much of our resources are now focused on this Dunedin study. And because the participants of this study are now middle-aged, they're in midlife, the focus of the research has been what what can we understand about midlife that can that can inform their aging, their their transition into older uh, life. And so We are now focusing on on measures related to structural brain integrity, um, as they may uh, allow us to have a window into later risk for dementia. Yeah. One of the things that I've learned about, which has been really fun and exciting, is that much of the failures, much of the disappointing results of clinical trials targeting Alzheimer's uh, and and related dementias may have to do with the fact that they've started too late in life, that when you target these interventions, whether they're physiological, dietary, pharmacological, when you target them to 70 and 80-year-olds, it's probably irreversible that it's too late, it's too late. So the, the, the major shift that's happening now, a major shift, is that these interventions are being targeted to midlife. Yeah. But the, 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 the very substantial challenge that that represents is what, what is gonna be the outcome? Yes. The outcome can't be Alzheimer's diagnosis because we would have to wait 20, 30 years for, for, to know what happened. So right. there is a desperate need for surrogate biomarkers in midlife. And that's where we, we're really focusing. Can midlife measures of brain structure and function yeah. through MRI serve as useful surrogate biomarkers for um, intervention trials, for prevention trials, you know, a few years, maybe we'll have more data uh, and I would love to talk with you about that.
0: That's so cool, right. I mean, you're looking at you know white matter integrity and but who knows yes. maybe even maybe even MRI I'm always hopeful that MRI can see a little bit more sensitively like yeah. you know global brain inflammation or or yeah. or things like that that sort of are in like you say a sort of like yeah. Indicative of
1: your projection of yeah. are going. One of, one of the measures that we're we're uh, hoping to adopt when we go back down to scan our study members, um, we scan them when they were 45, and we hope to be down there again when they're 52. Um, is this uh, is naughty or Nodi, I'm not sure how it's said. This neurite orientation dispersion and density imaging. Okay. Okay. So it's a it's a it, as I understand it. Again, I worry that I'm going to <laughs> mis misrepresent it. You can look at kind of a much more subtle variation in the structural integrity of neurites uh, and, and, and kind of their 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 orientation, their the dispersion index. Yeah. What we think or what we're hopeful for is that while while we've been able to identify measurable differences in white matter hyper, hyperintensities, which is, you know, they accumulate with aging, they're higher in those who develop dementia, they're kind of a clinical marker. We hope that there are even more subtle measures. Yeah, that can be identified in midlife that can be used as, as biomarkers to understand risk for um, later uh, dementia and perhaps be used as outcomes in, in trials. Oh, that's cool.
0: That's very cool.
1: And, and again, we, we hope that functional measures can have an important role there too, uh, because understanding the functional architecture of the of the aging brain is going to be really critical uh, in, in better, better ad- advancing the treatment and prevention of these disorders, which are only going to grow as the population continues to age, yeah,
0: and I, I think you're on. You know, definitely, there's there's a there's all kinds of potential indicators, and I think what you're saying yeah. makes sense. Is that it starts in your your you know a big factor is lifestyle. I mean, certainly genetics yeah. plays a role, but a big factor is lifestyle, and that starts to accumulate after the age of 30, even, and nice. you just start. You know, being a certain way, then that's. Let's
1: not talk about it too much. It's going to make you depressed the rest of the day. No, I mean, there, there, there's, there there's some investigators who argue that your risk for Alzheimer's and related dementias begins at conception. You know, so they're, they're, they're genetic factors, they're early environmental factors, they're, they're certainly midlife factors, cardiovascular fitness. You're a runner, you know, you know about the importance of fitness. lifestyle, diets, there's so many factors. We just, we're hopeful that we can make some small contribution in terms of what we can learn about uh, an individual's risk through measuring their brain. Yes. So far, there are some promising results with structure, and we hope um, that there'll be, you know, equally, if not more promising results with function once we can move fMRI into an area where we can uh, reliably ascertain uh, individual differences. Yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah, great discussion
0: and a yes. lot, of, lot of really
1: interesting information. And, and yeah, well, I, I, I'm grateful for the opportunity to, to talk with you about this, uh, Peter, and just chat. It's been a long time, and it's always always fun to catch up.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's always fun to catch up, and and like I said, I really mean it. When uh, it'd be great to have you back to talk about other aspects yeah,
1: of your life. Yeah, no, work. let's do it. Let's do it. Now it's so easy with Zoom, with uh, with our new work work life. It's a lot easier than it used to be. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, definitely. All right. Well, well, thank you again. And uh, my pleasure. I really appreciate your time. All right.
1: It's my pleasure, Peter. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. All right. Thank you.